0: Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19. If praise is not given to the rightful king, Jesus said that God will cause even the stones to cry out in praise to him because Jesus is the rightful king and he must be acknowledged as such. Jesus in chapter 19, had entered the city of Jerusalem and he knew that his death was imminent. The disciples thought that this was going to be the beginning of the establishment of his kingdom. Well, he arrives in the city on a donkey, symbolizing that he comes in peace as the rightful king. And the people acknowledge him as the rightful king. But there's also a significant pocket of resistance against his claim as the king of the Jews. And so they say, hey, tell your disciples to stop doing that. And their rejection of Jesus brings him to tears as he looks over the city and thinks about its coming destruction because of their opposition. But his grief over their souls does not paralyze him from standing up for God's glory. Here, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus is going to enter into the temple and see that the temple has turned into... A Gibraltar Trade Center, so to speak. A temple court, and and Jesus is going to have a problem with that. And so, tonight, I want to look at with you chapter 19, verse 45, through chapter 20, verse 8. And then we'll pick up the next part of the section in two weeks. So, beginning in chapter 19, I'll read with verse 45. This is the Word of God. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy Him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word, He said. On one of the days while He was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests... And the scribes with the elders confronted him and they spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority you're doing these things or who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus recognizes, and we ought to recognize, that those who use Jesus for selfish purposes have rejected God. Those who use Jesus for selfish purposes have rejected God. We see this in two ways in our text. First, the religious leaders use the house of God for selfish purposes, chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. And then secondly, the religious leaders use the teachings of God for selfish purposes, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 20. So, number one, the religious leaders use the house of God, or the temple of God, for selfish purposes. In verse 45, he recognizes the corruption that is in there and really the temple courtyard this is not in the temple proper where you have um, the showbread and and the lampstand and and uh, the holy of holies and so on this is in the courtyard area where they would have all these stations set up um, in order to conduct business and jesus had already arrived into the city claiming authority as the king allowing them to call him the king they said hosanna uh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And he did not keep them from saying such a thing. So he, he, he ex- accepts that claim of authority. And here in the temple, he acts like we would expect a king to act. If a guy was coming to establish his kingdom in a city like Jerusalem, we would establish him to bring about the rules that he would, he would want to have taken place. So remember, the Jews are thinking he's going to set up his kingdom. And they see him come in the city on this animal of peace, the donkey. And then now he clears out the temple and this seems to be consistent with what they would expect the king to do. The courtyard was where these animals were sold, but they weren't just any animals. They were special animals, animals that were acceptable for sacrificial purposes. And so this makes for a great business opportunity because Benjamin Smith, who's traveling from the region of Dan, 200 miles away, 200 miles north, wouldn't want to bring along several of his own animals that he had raised for himself and his family, not because they were unworthy animals, but because there is a risk of those animals getting injured along the way. And and an injured animal would be an unworthy sacrifice for God. And so he would come to the city of Jerusalem with an unworthy sacrifice and really a worthless um, animal And so the sellers knew that, that these people, some of these people would be coming from long distances and would not want to risk that. And so they would sell animals right there in the courtyard. And as you can imagine, gouge the prices or gouge the, the buyer with the high prices because the buyers had little other choice. But they didn't just sell animals. They also were changing money. We know from some of the other Gospels and um and uh, they were also selling other items that were necessary for sacrifice, like wine and oil and salt. In addition, they were uh, I mentioned they were changing money, collecting some of this Roman and Greek coins that in exchange for what was necessary in order to pay the temple tax. And that was a half shekel. And the, the exchange of the money was not just a clean exchange. Just like the money changers that we have in our day, if you want to change to a different currency, they're going to charge you a premium. They're going to charge you a, sur- a surcharge. And so some scholars believe that the money changers were getting between 10 and 15% profit on this changing of money. And so you can picture the scene in your mind that you have all these people, that's why I use the illustration of Gibraltar Trade Center, that, you know, come on over, buy your spotless lamb for the temple, half off for distant travelers guaranteed to be accepted by the priest for sacrifice. And you have another guy over here who's selling his animals with a similar tactic. And these sell- sellers were either family of the priests or they had purchased rights from the priest the priests uh, to be able to sell in the temple court. They had to buy their little booth area so that they could, they could sell these things or rent it, I should say. And the priests probably justified it in their mind thinking, hey, listen, God wants the right kind of sacrifices, doesn't he? And since he does, why not help them, help the people, the the offerers, uh, by making sure that they have the right kind of animals. And at the same time, we can put a few coins in our pocket. Well, the Lord Jesus comes into the temple and has no sympathy for this kind of treatment of God's house. Notice his anger expressed in verse 46. He quotes here, Uh, From an Old Testament text, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. Why was it that Jesus was so angry about what was going on? Because in our day, Jesus comes across as a pretty nice guy when people talk about him. He heals, he forgives, he's soft, gentle, meek really good guy, a guy everybody would like to know and talk to. But here we see him as a man on a mission to make sure that the worship worship of God is pure, is sacred, not defiled. What was so bad about what was going on? I mean, couldn't we argue with the priests that what was going on was necessary, that they needed to have good animals, because what if they didn't have good animals? And that possibly could be the case, but But I think the question that we have to ask is, did it really have to be done in the court of the Gentiles? That is the outer court of the temple. Did it really need to be done in the courtyard? In the place where worship was supposed to be taking place? You see, Jesus recognized the purpose of the temple. What does He say the purpose of the temple is? My house, my temple, shall be a temple or house of prayer. The true purpose of God's temple was not to conduct business, but it was to be a place of worship, of reverence, of the true and living God. Instead, they had made it into, the last part of verse 46 says, a robber's den. A robber's den. Robbers would perch, to, perch themselves along the highway that led to J- Jerusalem, and they would wait for pilgrims loaded with goods and money so that they could attack them and take their goods and money. And the religious leaders, Jesus is saying, are using the temple like that robber's nest. They perched themselves in the temple itself that should have been used to focus on God and His work. Instead, they're using it as a place where they can bilk people out of more money. And in so doing they effectively rob god not of money but of the worship that is due to him the reverence that the temple should have received should have been used for and so jesus recognizes the the uh the problem the the problems in the temple in verses 47 and 48 we see that the lord of the temple is opposed by the leaders of the temple so following this expression of Jesus' righteous anger, they respond by trying to destroy Him. Verse 47, and He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy them. And, I think a better word would be but here, but but they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to everywhere. So they wanted to destroy Him, but they couldn't find anything. They couldn't trump up any charges that would stick that would make him look uh, evil in front of the people, that would allow him to be indicted before the Roman officials. Jesus shows Himself to be the Lord of the temple by cleansing it from profane and commercial business. And He tries to purify it here by turning over the tables. Notice, go back up to verse 46, because I don't want us to miss what he calls the temple here. It is written, my house, the implication there is he's talking about he's taking ownership here of the temple. This is not something that an individual would say about the temple. This is something that Jesus is saying as Lord of the temple. My house, my temple, will not be made into a temple uh, that is used to rob God of his worship. And so we would expect that the people, the leaders of the Jews would be Not happy, especially if they haven't acknowledged that Jesus is the true Messiah, and so they want to, verse 47, destroy him. But they couldn't find anything to use against him. And the part of it was because Jesus was perfect and didn't have anything against the law, so to speak, but also because he had this huge following of people, and if they turned against Jesus in front of this crowd that loved Him, they would uh, they would uh, turn the crowd against themselves. Christ here is being openly rejected by His own race. When Jesus cleanses the temple here at the end of chapter 19, there's a brief time when the people of Israel get a taste of the future millennial kingdom and what it would be like. What will that future millennial kingdom be like well we know that the messianic king will personally present himself in his own temple in his own temple and that the word of god will go out from jerusalem and that the healing hand of the king will be on all suffering and that the greedy shepherds of israel will be cast out and if only the jews if they had known what made for peace they would have His endless sovereign rule as their king. But this story helps us see a glimpse of what the future reign of Christ will be like. When He comes into His city in Jerusalem, He will cleanse the temple. That's why I think there's a waiting period between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom, this 45 days, 30 of those days. 15 of those days will probably be done for uh, more judgment and then 30 of those days will be a time in which the temple will be purified because the Messiah will now reign as, as king over Jerusalem and even over the whole world. And so we have to guard ourselves against rejecting Christ as Lord of our own lives as these religious leaders did. That, that when Christ comes in, and says, here's what needs to change. Here's what needs to change in your life. Here's what needs to change in your church. And it's not something that we want to do. Then it tells us who, really, who we really want to be Lord of our life or Lord of our church. It's not Christ, ultimately. It's ourselves. We want to reign ourselves. We want to make our own choices. And so we have to guard ourselves against putting up walls to the teaching of Christ even if it may mean that our pocketbooks are, uh, are are looking a lot more successful because nothing is more valuable than Christ and following Him. So don't allow anything to come between you and Him. And maybe another way to say that is don't allow anything to come between you and His teaching that Jesus is connected to His Word and we should follow it. The religious leaders use the House of God for selfish purposes. They also use the teaching the teachings of God or the teachings of Jesus for selfish purposes. chapter 20 verses 1 through 8. Here this story I think is connected to the previous one because remember in verse 47 they're trying to find out a way in which they can destroy him and so now they're going to collude and make take some time, actually uh, the cleansing the temple, scholars believe, happened on Monday evening, according to Mark chapter 11. Happened on Monday Monday evening before he died. And so after this takes place, I think what happens is the Sanhedrin have a meeting. Like, what are we going to do to get rid of this man? Because he's causing all sorts of problems. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. That's what Caiaphas would say in John chapter 11. And here in chapter 20, it's now the next day. And so they've had this meeting all night. What are we going to do to to to, to, um, to defy the claims of Jesus and to make Him look foolish in front of the people? And so they come up with this question. The beginning of chapter 20 marks this new day. The temple court, I'm sure, was much quieter than it was the day before because you had all the buying, selling, trading, and stuff going on. Now, it's much quieter. It's used for teaching and for uh, worship. There's no commotion from all the buying and selling and trading, and a few small groups of people gather around to hear about Jesus and to worship. And Jesus is talking to some of his followers. And while he's teaching, notice who comes to him at the end of verse one: the chief priests, the scribes, with the elders. This is just another way of saying the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish religious ruling party. That is the 70 men members that make up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up actually of 71. 70 uh, of the chief priests and the scribes, and then one high priest. And so these 71 would basically uh, have ruling power that was authorized to them by Rome to, to carry out certain, even political functions, in addition to religious functions. The Romans, did, the Romans didn't want to deal with the Jews, and all of their laws were so complicated that they said, you know what, we're just going to appoint you guys to do that. You're not allowed to kill anybody. But, uh, or execute anybody, that is, carry out capital punishment. We'll do that, so you need to bring those charges to us, and that's why they had to go through so, much, so many hoops to get Jesus convicted. But, but as far as all these other things, as far as temple laws and all those things, food laws, you guys handle that, we'll appoint you as leaders. Sanhedrin were those appointed leaders. And their goal here, when they ask this question here in verse 2, is not to get an answer for the sake of knowledge. Do you ever get questions like this? Okay, they're not really, they don't really want to know the answer. They're more designed to condemn you. Uh, and, and that's what they're doing to Jesus. They, they, they've already determined in their mind that he, is not, he does not have the proper authority. So the question was not, hey, if you tell us, maybe we'll believe you and, and accept it. That's not the point. This question, I think, is directly tied to what happened on the previous night, which was at the end of chapter 19. The cleansing of the temple. Christ's outburst in the temple was a slap in the face of the Jewish religious leaders. Why? Because it said, hey, you're not doing things right. You've subcontracted out the courtyard that's supposed to be a place of prayer and teaching and worship. You've turned it into a place where you can make money. And so it was a slap in the face to them. And so they want to discredit Him as a ruler, as an authority. And so if Jesus responded to their question that, that we're going to see here in verse 2 with a simple answer, they would would have, I think, arrested Him right on the spot. And I think that's their intent. They Remember, verse 47 of chapter 19, they were seeking to destroy Him. And if He would have answered this question the way that that He only could answer it rightly, they would have arrested him for blasphemy. If he said, my authority is from God in heaven, they would say, you're blaspheming. Because if that's the case, then you're calling yourself the Son of God, the Messiah, and that cannot be. And they would have arrested him, taken him to the Roman officials and charged him with effectively treason against the Jewish nation. So, we we know what's at the heart of the question we know that they're not really looking for uh, an, an answer for the purpose of knowledge, but they're actually trying to indict him. And and if we think about it, look at look at the question, verse two, and they spoke to him saying, "Tell us by what authority are you doing these things, and who is the one who gave you this authority?" So these things, what what are the these things that the Sanhedrin are referring to? Jesus, remember has just recently, just in the last day, has received praise or accepted praise that only a king should receive as he rides into the city on a donkey, as they sing this psalm, this messianic psalm, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. He's also cleared out the temple in that same day. And so they ask, By what authority are you doing these things? How can you possibly accept praise from them? How could you possibly cleanse out the temple? But I think in addition to that, it probably speaks to his whole ministry. All this teaching, or you're calling yourself uh, the Son of God, where do you get all this authority? How can you pretend like you have the right, the authorization to cleanse the temple and to heal and to teach, even though you don't have any official status? And if we think about it from their perspective, they actually, we should be able to at least appreciate where they're coming from that is that Jesus had no formal training. Right? He came from a blue-collar non-academic part of Israel, Galilee, okay, kind of the sticks of of Israel. And he never sat under a rabbi. And here comes a guy that the people just know as just an ordinary carpenter. And he starts claiming all this authority. Well, where was authority when you were a young man? Where was authority as you are growing up? All of a sudden you're an adult and you start claiming all this authority in your teaching. And so their question is, tell us where it comes from. And so again, they're trying to indict him. But Jesus turns the table on them in verses 3 and 4. He answered them and said, I will also ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? So... I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And the heart of the question tells us that John's ministry and his authority to baptize had a source. That's what Jesus is getting at. Where did John's ministry, his baptizing, come from? By wh- by whose authority did John do it? Jesus wanted the religious leaders to acknowledge the source of authority that John had because if they didn't accept John's authority, they wouldn't accept Jesus' authority because they came from the same place. That's what He's trying to get them to see. And so He says, from where is John's authority derived? And He even makes it easy for them. He gives it, gives it to them in a multiple choice. Right? You've got two choices. Letter A, heaven, or letter B, men. Okay? We like multiple choices. We can eliminate the one we don't like and choose the other one. So the the point is, does John the Baptist, where does his authorization come from? Does it come from heaven, another way of just saying from God? Is it authorized by God? Or does it come from the earth? Is it earthly origin? Is it from men? Those are your two choices. Very black and white here. Make a choice. But the Sanhedrin don't like those two choices. So they opt for a third choice. Political correctness. Verses 5 through 7. Jesus had put them in a bind. They couldn't respond with answer A or B in order to save face. If they took answer A from heaven, then what would Christ do to them? Well, look at verse 5. It tells us, they reasoned among themselves. If we say A from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? In other words, why did you believe John? Why did you accept his authority? Why didn't you get baptized by him? And and here's the point that Jesus is making. This is very profound if you consider it in light of what they were asking Him. John didn't come from an official school of religion, did he? He didn't have an established rabbi as his mentor, did he? And yet he taught authoritatively about the things of God because he was sent from God. And if you will acknowledge John's authority, then you could easily acknowledge mine. I have a similar background to John's. They don't feel they can answer that because they know Jesus will condemn them for not believing John and believing John's message. So, they can't answer A. They also don't feel that they can answer B, which is from men. Verse 6, If we say letter B from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. In other words, if we choose letter B We're going to turn the crowd against ourselves. Because to discredit the authorization of John or to discredit John the Baptist, a national hero, would be the equivalent of a citizen of the United States saying, I think George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were a couple of idiots. We're not going to do that to our national heroes, are we? And so if the Sanhedrin said, listen, John's authority was from man. In other words, it was earthly. It was uh, humanistic. It was from Satan. Then they would condemn a national hero in front of the crowd who's watching and turn the crowd against themselves. And so they felt like they couldn't answer letter A or letter B, but not because they didn't know the answer. They they knew the answer was A. Look at the second part of verse 6. But if we say from men, letter B, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so, verse 7, they answered that they did not know where it came from. So instead of using one of the two choices that Jesus gave, they actually gave a third choice, letter C, that they came up with on their own, which is we don't know. We don't know. They take the politically correct way out they don't take a position they want both a happy crowd and a non-condemning jesus right if they let answered letter a jesus would condemn them if they answered letter b they would have an unhappy crowd so they take the politically correct way out and so we know why the sanhedrin didn't answer or probably maybe not the whole sanhedrin was here i Failed to mention this earlier. This is probably a representative group of the Sanhedrin, maybe not the whole seventy-one, but maybe a half dozen or dozen of them. So, so we understand why they didn't answer the question. But why didn't Jesus answer their question? Why did Jesus not answer the question that they gave to him in verse two? Tell us. I mean, it it seems like a simple question. Why not answer it? My authority comes from God. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Why not speak as He's spoken before? Was it because He didn't want to cast pearls before swine? Possibly. I think He was actually working toward an answer. And if if they would have given anything else other than the answer that they gave, which was a non-answer, then they actually would have received the answer that that they wanted out of Jesus. Okay? So in Jesus' question, He was responding to them by saying, if you respond to my question about John's authority, you'll have the answer to your question, where my authority comes from. Because if they thought about it, and if we think about it, what was the content of John's message? What, was he, what did he say over and over again? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is coming after Me one who is greater than I, whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And then behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the message of John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying to him, listen, John's message was about Me. His authority came from God. And He was pointing to Me. And and if you answer the question properly, like you know it to be, that John's authority came from God, you would know that my authority came from God because John pointed to me. That's your answer. And the next parable that we'll see in two weeks, in chapter twenty, verses nine through eighteen, also points towards towards an answer that Jesus was sent from His Father. It's a parable of the vineyard, where the the vineyard owner sends some servants to tell them to basically to collect some of the the crops from the vineyard and they beat some of them and kill others and then he says finally i'm sending my son they'll surely accept him and they kill his son because hey now the inheritance is ours and in that parable we're going to see that jesus or what jesus is saying is my authority comes from the vineyard owner my authority comes from the father and so he's, he's actually answered their question again. He answers it in two ways. One, by saying, where does John's authority come from? That's where mine comes from. And then secondly, by saying that this parable speaks about me. In fact, at the end of the parable, verse 19 of chapter 20, they recognize that this parable is about them and they seek to destroy him all the more. Their non-answer here in verse 7 proved that they were not really worthy to be called religious leaders they were not really worthy to lead the jews the problem was they was not that they didn't know the answer the problem was they were not willing to give an honest answer an honest answer would have been letter d we will not tell you that would have been the honest thing to say we know the answer We don't want to answer either way. It's not that we don't know, letter C, but it's instead, letter D, we will not tell you. The problem was not their dull mind, it was their stubborn will. They thought that their answer of we don't know was the only way out, but what they didn't realize was that in their non-answer, Jesus exposed their inability to be religious leaders. How could they not know where John's authority came from? How could they not know where this man who calls himself the King of the Jews came from? Where where his authority came from? He exposed them in front of the crowd, showed them that they were really not qualified to be religious leaders since they could not properly assess a man who had come from the wilderness like John, or had come from the wilderness uh, from the uh, from the area of Galilee like Jesus. When we reject Christ as our ruler, we will worship according to our own desires. These people show themselves to use Jesus and His teaching for the sake of selfish purposes. And so, if we don't accept Christ, this this foundational thing that all people must do, if we don't accept Christ as ruler, we will worship according to our own desires. In what ways have we taken away from the true worship of God even as believers? In what ways would Christ be upset if He came into our assembly? If He met with us? In what ways would He be frustrated? What kind of things would He be overturning? Have we been like the Jewish religious leaders in turning this, assembly time into a place of commerce. I don't think that that's generally the case, but I think it's always good to check ourselves. You know, a person has a small business out of their home and wants to use the relationships here for conducting business among church people. If the primary reason that we have relationships here is to conduct business. We have come for the wrong reason. We have a serious problem. Because the time in which we come to assembly is designed for the worship of God. That we come not to scope out how we can get a few more bucks for our business, but instead how we can better encourage people and be equipped ourselves to worship God. So I think it's good always to take stock of our motives and our actions in these things. Are there any places where we have robbed God of the worship by treating this time of assembly as a time of something other than one that should be focused on worship? Maybe we haven't robbed God of His worship in business so much as in our effort and our motivation. Maybe we lack the desire to worship Him that has become a tiresome chore to worship God God does not want and I believe does not accept half-hearted worship. He wants genuine, sincere, loving worship. And that's why he would tell the Jews during the time of Malachi that listen, you know, you're bringing all the sacrifices, but they're they're not working. Okay? Your your heart needs to be in it. And the fact that your your worship is is fading in the types of offerings that you're bringing to me shows that your heart's not in it. God God was looking for their heart. And in Amos, he would say, I'm tired of your sacrifice. I'm tired of your new moon festivals. I'm tired of all this. And they could say, well, God, you're the one who told us to do it. But, but he always was working toward the heart, wasn't he? And, and the same thing is true for us. God doesn't get a charge... Or, or, or glory out of us just showing up. Like we've checked it off. We've been to church. We need to serve the Lord with gladness, Psalm 100 says, and come before His presence with singing. Is that the way that worship of God is for you? Is it something that, that just flows? That's, that's the great part about singing is it's often something that flows out of our hearts. Should should be that way. Has worship been like that for you or has it become a drudgery? You see, God demands first place. Jesus is our rightful King. He has the authority to come in here and say, here's what ought to be done. Here's how I demand to be worshipped. Worshipped and God demands supreme worship. He demands our very best. That's how we finished actually this. Last song that we sing, I want to be faithful. I'll give Him my best. Maybe those words just kind of rolled off your tongue, but I think there's there's a there's a great truth that we need to consider in that song, in that promise that we've made in song. God, I'm willing to give You my very best in worship. And really, when we think about who we're coming to worship, how can we give Him anything less? The 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 works of God the the worship of God, the church of God is not supposed to be, the teachings of God are not supposed to be used for selfish purposes, but for God's glory, for God's sake. And so we do it for Him with a heart that loves Him and overflows with, with uh, thanksgiving to Him. Let's pray and ask God to help us to apply this to our hearts. Father, it's amazing that You would send Your Son and He would be so unwelcome. Uh, we would expect that that of all people that would ever be sent by You, of all the prophets and lots of imperfections and maybe came across a little too harshly or too softly, we would expect that people would reject them on occasion. But, but when they send Your Son, how, how could they possibly reject Him? And so we are saddened by that prospect and we see people around us who reject the Savior when He is the, the means of their uh, freedom from the bondage of sin and yet they despise Him. Lord, we, we are saddened by that because we recognize that we were in that position once as well. And, and it wasn't really that long ago that, that we were in that position. that We were far away from You and living a life that was seeking pleasure outside of you and had no concerns for our sins or the consequences of them and yet you you were you saw fit to allow Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners and you sought to offer to us the gift of free salvation. You sought to impart to us spiritual life even though we were spiritually dead. And so we praise You for Your great mercy. Lord, help us to acknowledge the authority of Christ, that it rightly comes from You, our Father, and that all that He tells us to do as revealed to us in the New Testament is, is supposed to be done with a willing heart. And Lord, we admit that there are times in which we... We seek to obey you unwillingly. That we have a resistant spirit, and so we ask for your forgiveness and and ask us ask that you would cleanse us and and change us and uh, restore us to a right relationship with you. Lord, help us this week to to give Jesus first place in our lives. Help us to consider how to make sure that the worship of you is done in a right manner here at this place. Lord, we love to come together and worship you. We love to see others do the same. So, Lord, may your name be praised through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.